Good evening, everyone. Welcome aboard. My name is Josh Gilliland, one of the founding attorneys at The Legal Geeks. With me is Nari Ely, an attorney, and she's with the U.S. Courts. Tonight, we're taking a little break from discussing Lower Decks, and we're going to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture, released in 1979. We're going to talk about why it's important, and there's some wonderful legal issues that we can get into as well. Nari, how are you this evening? Doing great, Josh. Um, I really loved this episode, the, the last episode of uh, Lower Deck. Steve, who will join us when we are ready to actually podcast about the episode, is going to love it. <laughs> yeah, it's so beautiful. Um, but, so beautiful. you know, the fact that it's such a perfect, uh, almost, in, there are definitely shot for shots <laughs> in this of the original motion picture makes, I think, for a pretty good segue while we wait for Steve <laughs> to talk about the motion picture. Yes, and Steve's uh, camping with his boys. It's a scout event. Uh, I also volunteer in scouting. So they're out having fun, doing socially distanced family activity and scouting. And I, I do kind of envy that because we've all been indoors working hard. So that does sound like a fun, fun trip and scouting's fun. So let's talk about somebody who definitely was not a Boy Scout, and that's Captain Kirk. And uh, <laughs> deep cut. Uh, so I, in 1979, I was five. I remember the animated series as a little boy, watching that on our family big TV set. And my dad and his buddy, uh, Scott, took us to go see it. And we saw it at the drive-in. I was five. My brother was two. Absolutely not an age-appropriate movie for children of that age, not because of subject matter, but because it's a high-level sci-fi film, and that's not good for a five-year-old. I remember being confused, but because <laughs> there's stuff there that's just like five-year-old way way you're telling me when you were five you didn't understand the concept of Eger trying to merge with a human to complete its mission no <laughs> no but i did love the enterprise so the, so the extended scene of kirk and scotty not talking because you know they're not going to ruin that moment just flying around the ship for over a minute that was beautiful and i think i fell in love with the ship at that point in time and it's makes sense with all the pent up demand that there had been over a decade that made the motion picture possible that I understand why they did that. And it's also the anti-Star Wars. It's high concept science fiction. There isn't a bad guy. There's a problem to solve. You figure out the solution as opposed to who do I blow up? And that's radically different. And as I've gotten older, I really appreciate this film because of those lessons that it has. And this formula worked great in Star Trek Four. I mean, like it's Star Trek Four is very similar, but very different because it's a much better script and there's a lot of other things going for it. But this is late 70s, high concept science fiction is very thought provoking and meaningful. But 
I recommend seeing the November Fire documentary, Back to SpaceCon. And it is so beautiful. It's about the first sci-fi Star Trek convention in San Francisco in 1975. Oh, it was wow. held, oh, it's, there's 16 millimeter footage of it. And it like, they talk about the chronology from 75 to 79 and in the Bay Area. And it is this emotional gut punch to watch because it's so endearing and it's so beautiful. And you have people who are true fans who kept the light on. And the fact they rented a high school gym and it was announced on Channel 2, Bob Wilkins, and Friday and Saturday morning, there's a line of 2,000 people to to go through all the tchotchkes and watch old episodes together on real to real movie, you know, a film. That's everything beautiful about fandom, everything. And so when you look at the the march that they had to get Star Trek back, I understand that pent up desire to see. I want to see the spaceship. <laughs> Show me that Klingon battle cruiser, nice and slow and up close. And it's you know, like, that's phenomenal when you really think about it. So it's, it's a creature of its time in a positive way. The costumes, some of them are uh, highlight that spandex is a privilege, not a right. And then others were very free and liberated and <laughs> like wow that's very 70s and i think when mccoy beams aboard for the first time that to me is what the 70s looks like <laughs> you have no yes you're right was, <laughs> okay i'm not off base here because i don't have a great frame of reference <laughs> you weren't there and that's okay uh i was a boy and <laughs> like my dad had a man perm at some point in time and a big beard. So like, you know, that stuff, it happened. I still wonder how I exist. Like my <laughs> mother, it's like, mom, you thought that was okay? <laughs> That's pretty good, Josh. <laughs> I have questions. Uh, but it, it highlights there was that community and this this movie was that reward and i really encourage people to to see back to space con because it does highlight all that's good about fandom and star trek and why people love it so much so they they earned it and this this movie had a giant budget and you can tell that oh yes they, including the one minute fly around <laughs> Yeah, like there are background aliens and crew. And so it's like, oh, look, there's a, a Vulcan. There's a uh, Andorian. And like, you just kind of like, you know, start picking them out of the lineup. It's like, I don't know what he is. And it's like, that's neat. So again, it's beautiful, well-made. They needed to tighten up the script. It needed, they, they had a rush production. There wasn't enough time to edit. You know, it's like that's that's why this movie frequently gets called the motion sickness, just because it keeps going on and on and on. But 
you know, now in my 40s, I see the beauty of it. And I, I felt that way for a long time, just because it, you know, there's a lot there. You know, it established San Francisco with Starfleet Command. That, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I I don't have the nostalgia value for it, but um, you know, I am willing to look past its flaws because of the appreciation for what it represented. Um, and without this one, I don't know that we would have had everything that followed from it, not just the other movies, but also the other series. Um, so I'm really grateful for the original motion picture. They so there was something called Phase Two that they were trying to get made of a second series. And there are elements of that that do end up in Next Generation. And you can see elements from phase two with Decker and Ilea that are very much echoes of Riker and Troy. Oh, and definitely. I did. I noticed, well, so I noticed that similarity. I did not realize that it was in fact a connection. <laughs> yeah, they, Roddenberry had been thinking about it for a while. So there's a lot of big concepts there. And although I will note that Troy does not have an oath of celibacy. <laughs> that that is a buzzkill. So <laughs> and the fact she has to tell people about it right out of the gate, it's like oh. I know. <laughs> That's hurtful. I mean like like shake hands. Oh, Grant, we can't do that anymore. But to say hello and then get friend zoned that second, that's a huge blow to morale right there. Because it's like, eh. so I feel like it. It could be just because she's you know somewhat telepathic, right, or empath empathic, and can tell. You know, I already know what you're thinking, so I'm just gonna stop you here. <laughs> the other alternative is that it's basically, uh, oh, what's that movie where the girl has like, it turns out the teenage girl has cancer the whole time. She says, you know, you can you can get to know me, we can be friends, but you have to promise you won't fall in love with me. <laughs> it's uh, a really funny movie, I can't remember what it is now. <laughs> Yeah, and I did not see that one. Famously so, corny movie. Anyway, that could also be what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I my character has a short shelf life, so yeah, like a like a butterfly, it's only going to live a short time. Uh, again, so much there. Uh, now, the grant the uniforms are not attractive. Uh, the Kirk's Admiral uniform and Spock's uniform are probably the best looking. The the little flap that hangs down just like looks weird. Like the their actors have talked about they needed help like uh, getting out of it to go use the restroom. So that's not great. Yeah. <laughs> but the the belt that was supposed to be like uh, life sensors, you know, monitoring vitals and, and that sort of thing. So again, interesting concept. So again, beautiful high concepts that show a lot of creativity, but they also decided, let's just do it all. Yeah, including a scene on Vulcan, um, which uh, I personally love, but yes, it was far reaching. <laughs> I actually think the Vulcan scene is exceptional because of the moon in the background and the, you know a planet that's close by filling the sky you know, and that valley where Spock's trying to attain Colin R, 
you you have what looks like ancient sculptures and then modern technology mixed in together. So just very fascinating. And maybe that modern technology. Of Vulcanism, right? Or just the Vulcan culture, which is this interesting combination of logic and reason and technology that is uh, generally has been more advanced than human up until, of course, you become allies. But um, mixed with this deep-seated tradition, and uh, it's it's always fascinated me the combination of or of mysticism with reason that forms the Vulcan religion. It's mysticism around reason and logic. <laughs> Yeah, that is a paradox. And it also highlights that religion doesn't have to be without math. It's yeah. Well, and there's there's also a lot that, you know, frankly, is quite, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Magical <laughs> about a lot of math, physics, all these things, the laws of nature that we discover. Um, uh, there's there's a lot that you could ponder there as spiritual, not only as uh, logical, and that seems to be what the Vulcan religion is about. Um, and I have found that fascinating. Then, and, and Spock senses V'ger, yes, space, and like that's phenomenal to go like that's that's a big connection because space is vast. Like, yeah, Vulcan's not that close to Earth, is it? It's like, how, how's that working out, buddy? How, how? Uh, but that's part of what makes it special and unique and part of the joy of Star Trek. It's, you know, I sensed it. Oh, okay. And everyone says, okay. <laughs> <laughs> also says something about V'ger, that he was able to be sensed by Spock from so far away, since you could... He could not sense him if he was not, in fact, an intelligence and a person. But anyway, <laughs> more on that as we as we go on. But let's let's get into the the law that that we see, and we open up with the the Klingons. And did you recognize who played the Klingon commander? No, who? Mark Leonard. So the actor who played Spock's father, and also the Romulan commander in Balance oh. of Oh. So, so he's played three different characters in Star Trek. And I remember as a kid seeing him speak at, I think it was TimeCon, maybe the second TimeCon that we went to. And he talked about getting to make up for that Klingon uh, captain. Uh, so, but that was their way of being able to bring him in. So that way he had a, a part to be part of the big reunion for for actors who had been in the TV series. Mm -hmm. But we see this, it starts out with a really good battle and it's a lot of interior of Klingon ships, which we hadn't seen before. We, you know, this establishes the Klingons with the forehead ridges and the uniforms that we see throughout the next generation Right, right, because I believe this is a serious departure from the way they looked during the original series, which was very low budget. It, the the uniforms do make sense conceptually, like they they the sash that they would have. You know, there are elements of it that's very Klingon that that still makes sense, but I I don't remember fan reaction because again, I was five. 
Um, <laughs> and there wasn't an internet. And, um, and I don't remember my dad's buddy, Scott, who was a wonderful nerd and an, an amazing human being who passed way too early, developed high definition TV. So like, yeah, just wonderful man who loved sci-fi. And I, but I, and I remember he would talk to my brother and I, like we were people and about sci-fi and comics and again, just a decent human being. But I don't remember his reaction to the Klingons. Maybe with hypnosis I could, but I, I don't. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't remember if it was the same reaction to like Discovery. Right, uh, right. Like, what is this? Uh, on, I will say also, I started rewatching Discovery recently. On rewatching, I am less perturbed <laughs> by the change with the Klingons. Um, I'll see if I continue to change my mind as I continue to rewatch it. Um, but just because I was reminded of how much of a change there was between the original series and Next Gen, not only in how they looked, but also um, kind of a bit of a shift on their culture as well. They were always brutish, but it was not as developed. It yeah. wasn't the, the warrior cast in charge type of thing. They were, you know, the stand-in for the Soviets. Yeah. And just supposed to be a little on the barbaric side. Uh, but we can talk about the Klingons at another time in greater, yes. greater detail. But let's talk about this Klingon task force or wolf pack of three battle cruisers that get vaporized. Now, features in their space, so they decide we're going to go attack. That seems like a Klingon thing to do. Yeah, it's just, I mean, they're they're following the script of... You know, Federation, we're going to go make friends. Klingons, we're going to go blow it to hell. So, yay! <laughs> um, but they get blown out of the sky. And it's like they're like erased. I mean, the effect still holds up. And I, in a, as a kid, I remember being freaked out watching that. It's like, whoa. Uh, but could, a, could the Klingon Empire sue the Federation for the loss of those vessels? And the way you react is so adorable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just because I'm sure this was, of course, on everyone's mind when they watched that scene. <laughs> Who is liable for the loss of these spacecraft? <laughs> yeah, that's, how, that's what we do. Uh, and and I, I wrote about this during the Star Trek 50th anniversary. And so uh, we do have a blog post that that gets into this. And and do you want to talk about like V'ger and the fact that it's launched, it goes through a black hole, it becomes self-aware. Just keeps yeah, coming. yeah. What what do you think? Are is Earth would NASA be responsible? Well, how about I'll play the part of the Klingon advocate for just a second. <laughs> so, um, you know, Earth launches a piece of 
uh, its most advanced technology at the time with the extraordinarily vague mission of learn everything there is to know. Um, I argue that predictably the advanced piece of technology becomes more intelligent and more dangerous and the inevitable result is that it comes back and uh, destroys these Klingon battle cruisers, which were, of course, you know, just innocently passing by. Go on. <laughs> so I would argue that Earth was negligent, that NASA was woefully negligent in launching this uh, advanced uh, and at least somewhat intelligent piece of machinery into the void of space with nary a care for what it would what it would do. <laughs> okay, you're giving us in the '70s way more credit. I mean, like we had sure. You know, you had people who came up with Atari, uh, you know, and thus Pong, and <laughs> uh, amazing innovations. Like, we would not have had uh, the 1980s if it had not been for the beginning of the computer revolution um, in, in the 70s. I know. Uh, I realize that when I say advanced, I think it had about the same amount of computing power as the graphing calculator I used when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. And, and like that, that baby could land on the moon compared to <laughs> what the guys in Apollo had. So that's, I, this is no friendship one. This is about launching a probe to go out and learn because it's what we do. Now, the idea that it would fall through a black hole and like develop a personality and then want to come home. Okay, we might name computers. We might think our car has a personality. But it's My car's name is Clifford, just, just so you know. I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Uh, totally makes sense. I don't think it's foreseeable that this would have happened, that it would have made fr made friends with an advanced intelligent race yeah yeah and then gets in on its way so uh so there's that the the, you know, and yeah, I just want to, oh, just for our listeners, I just want to clarify when Josh is talking here about foreseeability, <laughs> um, ordinarily in tort law, um, you are a, a, a potential tort feasor, someone who has caused an injury through negligent conduct, can only be held liable through foreseeable um, injuries that resulted from their negligence. Um, so in this case, the argument is that although there were possibly injuries that were foreseeable through the, the type of negligence that I, as the Klingon advocate, am alleging, like let's say they launched it and it struck a Klingon satellite or something like that, that, that might be, because that's foreseeable that it might strike other objects in space. Uh, I I have to agree with Josh that falling through a black hole as opposed to getting destroyed by a black hole and then encountering an intelligent machine race, uh, yeah, no, that's not going to count. <laughs> like, could could you imagine the briefing? So, um, here's what happened. We got the slides going through it. And, uh, <laughs> Guys in bell bottoms and pocket protectors hitting their head on the wall and at object terror with 
you know, we weren't expecting that one, but you know, yeah. you got us. Uh, fun meeting though. Yeah. So, but looking at maritime law and, you know, lost vessels and causing somebody damage, you know, the, the standard is negligent. And that one test is negligent conduct on navigable waters that causes loss to another vessel constitutes a maritime tort. So did V'ger cause a celestial tort shooting those battle cruisers out of the stars? Well, so my question, Josh, is um, is a merit does a maritime tort have the same like test for determining whether there's tort liability? Um, I think the I would guess that it is. I would think that the thing that it's clarifying is that just because a tort occurs on the high seas does not mean you get away with it. Yeah, if, yeah. There's no arrested development type arguments here with to the sea. <laughs> yeah, no. As much as I love Fonzie. No, that's not. I'm at law. No, <laughs> yeah. Just to bring in the Martian for just a second, but yeah. <laughs> ah, nerds. So, <laughs> I I don't think there's going to be liability for V'ger, but that could be an awkward meeting with the ambassador. You know, because mm -hmm. like you guys did fire on it. If you just left it alone, it would have kept going. But no, you had to go poke the giant space cloud and. See what happens. I yeah. will also say that it's possible the Klingons will not sue because they did get glorious deaths in battle. <laughs> and, and you also have to admit, like, yeah, we did get our butts kicked by your 300-year-old probe. <laughs> yeah, that's... It's a little embarrassing. They might not want to raise an international complaint about that one. <laughs> no, we're good. We're just gonna not talk about this. We'd appreciate it if you don't talk about it either. Saigons. Well, let's, so we got the groovy costumes. We got the groovy ship and they're still working the bugs out and there's a transporter accident. We wanna, wanna talk about is that strict liability or is that negligence? What do you think? Yeah, so let's start with, um, let's see if we can't create a, a work out some products liability here. Uh, so let's start with going through the test. And Josh, why don't you help me by pointing out where this is? Uh, be, uh, be, be the lawyer for the manufacturer of the transporter here. So a typical products liability case. Let's just say that we're headquartered in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a typical products yeah, liability like we, case. We oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Like we're 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 in upstate New York. We took over where Kodak was. That's where we build these things. And uh, we could talk about New York law or the general test. Let's let's go for it. Um, I'm, I'll go with the general test, but you're welcome to let me know if there are some funny New York quirks in there. <laughs> um, the general test for uh, products liability is that a defendant sells a plaintiff a product the plaintiff uses. Um, the defend uh, the product has to be commercially available. So this doesn't include like you know if this uh, if this transporter was a prototype that wasn't actually on the market. Um, although I oh, go go ahead, Josh. That is an interesting question since it was the updated Enterprise. So did they go on? That that's a good question. No no no. So that's uh, this is. This is 
what I wish my law school professors would have done is uh, use these as issue spotters. So yes, that is a good issue to spot, which is, um, you know, because uh, we're, we're kind of having some creative license here because the movie doesn't really explain exactly why this happened um, with two people dying, one of whom at least has the time, just enough time to scream before they dematerialize forever. Um, but we don't really know why. So it's entirely possible that the transporter was a prototype because the entire enterprise was kind of a prototype that they had yet to work out the kinks of. Um, in which case we would fail this test right on the second factor just because it's not uh, it's not commercially available. The third fat the third step of the test is that the plaintiff of course has to suffer an injury. I think that one we're good. <laughs> they are very dead. Um, there has to have been the fourth uh, uh, point in the test. There has to have been a defect when the item was sold. So that's another way out. Josh, do you want to tell me why that one might be a problem here? Uh. I, I was thinking about another issue, but go on because go on, I'll share my thought. Oh, sure. Um, so in this case, the uh, it's again, because we don't know exactly what happened. It seems, you know, if, if, if you, Josh, were the lawyer for the manufacturer or the designer of this transporter, you might argue, well, the, the transporter worked fine when it left our facility and you put it in this ship and did God knows what to it. Um, and then it horribly malfunctioned. Um, so that would be a serious that would be a, a, a break in this chain is if um, it wasn't actually defective when it was sold and something not uh, not the responsibility of the defendant happened to it along the way or in the use of it. I think there could be a, a spin on that. So maybe the transporter is commercially available. So we got the guys in Rochester cranking these out and they're going in starships left and right. And they have a contract with uh, Starfleet. And so every, all the starships are getting them. And they send the standard one that they've made and it's put into the enterprise. They do all the install correctly. The issue is the power source on the enterprise. Because uh, that's where yeah. that is. So if it's a power spike, which sounds like they, they were having problems there. So if it was either a compatibility factor or the fact that power supply and and is dying and that causes the failure or some interface problems that they're not able to get the signal. So maybe the system isn't the problem, it's being integrated right. into the enterprise that was the problem. Yeah. And if I'm representing the manufacturer of transportees, like that could be the argument of, it worked. You guys did fix it. It was on you because your ship is different and it completely refit. And the other uh, Constitution class vessels don't have this problem. Yes. So, and this would factor into either the part where it has to be defective when it was sold or the last part, which is that it has to be the proximate cause of the injury. And I, I that would fit into either one. I would probably go with the, it wasn't defective when it was sold, just because that means you don't have to explain to a jury proximate cause and rely on them understanding that. Um, but so just to have some fun with this, to game this out, uh, this would be a fun trial because what you would do as the defendant is you would have to hire an expert in transporter technology um, and 
And then with good documentation to preserve the chain of evidence, you would want to run tests on this actual unit to see um, once it's is when it is no longer in the uh, retrofitted enterprise, does it transport, you know, what are those canis canisters that are supposed to emulate a person? <laughs> does it transport those back and forth just fine? No, I, they, they do, they have canisters that they use or like test containers that they use in Next Gen, I think. And I believe they showed up in an episode, I think they showed up in an episode of, no, they didn't show up in an episode of Lower Decks. I was saying they should be using those canisters to test the transporter in Lower Decks anyway. <laughs> Um, but yes, so that would be what you would want to do and then present those results in an expert report and then through the expert testimony at the trial. That would be probably how you would prove to the jury um, this sort of uh, that that the chain of liability here to establish products defects is is just broken. I agree and I agree with that analysis. So good job. What Wait, oh, one more question. Could there be ordinary negligence for somebody who failed to warn the space dock, don't transport over here, we've got problems? Yeah. Uh, and military making mistakes, failure to communicate, that sort of thing could happen. Kirk does go out of his way to tell Rand it, it's not your fault because it was his by saying beam aboard at this time. So now granted, you know, you would think people from the enterprise would be saying like, whoa, time out, we, we haven't fixed it yet. You could die horribly, wait, wait. It's, go over to the space station and take the shuttle over. So you can have an awkward flyby too. Yeah. <laughs> into two 30 second flybys instead of one minute long flybys. Yeah, that would be weird if they did it a second time. <laughs> Here are a couple angles that you didn't see in the first one. Let's do that for a little bit. We went around the port side the first time, this time the starboard. And that, that would be funny. Um, that would be super funny. Now let's talk about one of my favorite characters. And there's a reason why I really, I love all Trek, but the original series triad of Kirk, Spock and McCoy were that secret sauce that really made it work because of what each represents. And each series is, has their own magic on characters that you can connect to and, 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 and love. But, you know, I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, but there's something about that cranky doctor that I just love. Yeah. And <laughs> I love him uh, because he's just, you know, and, and represents the best of humanity. And, and um, you know, he beams aboard and he scolds Kirk. I mean, like he's talking to a guy who is an admiral and just rips into him. And Kirk says, I need you. And that's all that he asked to say. And McCoy's like, okay, that is loyalty and love and fidelity. And again, everything why people, you know, go to Star Trek, mm -hmm. you know, you, and, you know, friends that you haven't seen in ages say like, I need your help. 
okay. And then we're on some adventure to go save humanity. But let's talk about him getting drafted. And Oh man, nice one, Josh. <laughs> Cause he looks like like the full-on 70s hippie, like with that beard and I mean Spock at the beginning on Vulcan with the hair as well. So like again, we are totally in the 70s, like with what's happening here. And so we get Scraggly McCoy with a mantastic beard. Yes. And and, you know, he says, like, I was drafted with the reserve activation clause. And I just want to say there are such things. That's and uh, is that the name of it? Yeah, we uh, so in uh, looking at uh, 50 USCS section 3819 of uh, this uh, up and goes up until July 1, 1953, and subject to some other limitations. The president shall be authorized to order into the active military or naval service of the United States for a period not to exceed 24 consecutive months with or without their consent, any members and units of any or all reserve components of the armed forces of the United States and retired personnel of the regular armed forces. McCoy would have been in that retired category, which is how that reserve activation clause would have pulled him back in. Because again, giant killer space cloud is on its way to Earth and, you know, your buddy needs you. Uh, I have a feeling if Kirk had just called and asked, he probably would have said yes anyway and probably would have been a little less hostile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm imagining if he had called him, though, he would have just said, bugger off. It's, it had to be the in-person, McCoy, I need you. <laughs> yeah, and at that point, maybe, well, again, time is short because, like, they, they know it's on its way. They got three days. Yeah. So, like, beaming over and going, like, hey, bud, here's the deal. You and me, the brand new ship, we're going to go save humanity. Let's do this. Like, that... That would be the preferred method. I mean, I would, you would. Yeah. I'm like, it's how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what we do. Uh, so, yeah. The, the end, well, let's not get there yet. So there's, any other thoughts on the Enterprise or V'ger before we cross into? Um, I don't think I've got any other legal thoughts is the problem. This was a very high concept episode. Um, it was a little difficult for me to do too much issue spotting on this one, which is saying something. <laughs> um, because it seems to focus, you know, mostly on this relatively, relatively intimate narrative about Decker, Ilya, it's, is it Ilya? Uh, something like that. <laughs> and V'ger. Um, and of course, Ilya clone or like unit, whatever she becomes after that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Spock. Um, and kind of everyone seems to be moving around that orbit. That's kind of what the story collapses into. Um, and there isn't, 
isn't really a lot. I'm trying to think. Um, I guess is a is was when uh, when Spock mind melded with V'ger. I I presume that was you know involuntary <laughs> mind meld. Is a involuntary mind meld an assault, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> if it was, <clears throat> if you decided to mind meld with me, I I I, I would say no, don't. You don't need to know all the <laughs> the horrors I've seen, and it's like, like that. I don't, I don't need people to see my search history. Why would I want someone to mind meld with me? <laughs> nope, I've seen horrible things, and. <laughs> But on the flip side, if it's trying to communicate and this version of life is so radically different, you're trying to figure out, is this like mind melding with a Horda in order to foster some form of communication for the first time? Uh, but as Spock quickly learns, it's complete and total sensory overload and uh, it doesn't go well. But yeah. That's uh, under normal circumstances with life as we know it. Yes, dealing with V'ger or a whale, I would say no. <laughs> so I guess there's two ways out of this. The first is that it technically is an assault, but. Um, the person who would be the would-be victim doesn't want to sue or press charges because they uh, now can communicate and realize that it was a form of communication. So that's always actually one thing to, I think it's helpful to keep in mind when we're having fun with these issue spotters. It's just because there is potential for liability doesn't mean there's a lawsuit. <laughs> so um, the second one is that, you know, this this is very arguably a wartime scenario, um, in which case we're not dealing with ordinary tort with this was an offensive contact that wasn't consented to. Uh, we don't really worry about that kind of thing when Earth is under assault. Um, there are other rules that we follow and those are important. And, you know, I, I'm not prepared to, but maybe I could make a really good case for how a mind involuntary mind meld doesn't comport with our um, it would be a whole nother set of rules that would apply instead. Absolutely. Yeah. Which brings us towards the end and, and a follow-up point I want after that. So the human adventure is just beginning and we have, you know, uh, V'ger and Decker merge in the spectacular sci-fi fashion. And, you know, Kirk goes, when they're back on the ship, they, you know, they ask for casualties and Kirk changes his mind and says, list them as missing. What's a missing person? Hmm. Is there a difference between miss, like what's the difference between missing in action and killed in action? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there, there are legal definitions for missing in action or what a missing mm -hmm. person is. And, and one such definition is a missing person is a member of the armed forces who is a missing status. And missing status means a person who is determined to be absent in a category with a whole bunch of categories. Now, granted, first category is missing. So that's 
circular logic right there. So thank you, Congress. Uh, <laughs> missing in action, interned in a foreign country, captured, beleaguered, besieged, detained in a foreign country against that person's will. This was more like going to a higher plane of existence. And because V'ger had learned all that there is to learn, but didn't understand imagination and different levels and, and hope and dreams um, because of the, you know, after the mind meld, where Kirk is holding Spock's hand in sickbay and Spock says something along the lines of, despite all of his knowledge, he doesn't understand this. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that took on deeper meaning um, recently because uh, my, as I mentioned, my father took me to see this. And my father passed away in August. And uh, I, um, when visiting him, you know, made a point to sit there and hold his hand. And when the nurse came in and asked if I wanted to go out in the hallway when they turned off life support and extubated him, I said, no, I'm staying. Because that just basic concept of holding somebody's hand for something traumatic is radically important to, so that they know that they're not alone. And that scene um, highlights what Star Trek is for that human condition and what is life. And uh, just took on a very new meaning for me uh, in the last couple months. So uh, again, so again, I have a far greater appreciation for this film than when I was five because I was five, it was 1979. Um, now, when did you first see this movie? Um. Actually, not that long ago, because I um, I managed to somehow not watch most of the Star Trek movies, or I guess any of them, um, and just had been plowing through the shows um, okay. and didn't really realize that I was missing this uh, this whole aspect of the Star Trek lore um, until uh, Picard was about to come out, um, and I was watching previews for it and realized that there were things that had happened <laughs> that I was not aware of, important things that I was sure I would have noticed, <laughs> and then realized that there were all these movies that I had actually never seen. Um, I was embarrassed and ashamed since I was considered myself a huge Trek fan. So I went through and watched um, all of them uh, in order, and it was one of the best couple weeks of my life that I was watching all of those. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so that was, that must've been, you know, whenever Picard was first starting to come out, um, in the, in the month or so before it's released, that's when I watched all of these. So never feel shame because sci-fi and Star Trek's for everybody. So there's, there's no fan test for how much of a fan are you truly? And the only one who thinks that, I would pass it now. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyone who thinks that is just, oh, like that defeats the purpose. Like that's Star Trek is supposed to be inclusive. 
And always when you watch it, and looking at it, something filmed in 1979, there was decent representation. So you do see, uh, you know, there's a engineer working alongside Scotty who's African American. You see someone who's an officer who's Native American and, and has elements of, of her culture uh, that, that she's wearing. So Star Trek has always tried to be inclusive. So like there isn't, you know, like there, there's no, like you must be this tall to ride or own this many props or anything like that. So like never. Was the tall comment, was that tall comment specifically addressed towards me, Josh? <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Um, no. Uh, no, I just, that's what people can use for gatekeeping. So like, that's just not, not appropriate. Because that that defeats the entire purpose of track when that happens. Oh, it's, a, it's supposed to be for everybody. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's supposed to make you feel good. Um, it's yeah. supposed to be an incredibly optimistic vision of the future and the adventures that humans will have in that future. Exactly with a really beautiful, cool spaceship that you just want to go <laughs> that away. Fire her up. Um, <laughs> like, warp me. Uh, yeah, this, this movie, it is an acquired taste. It earned a bunch of criticism, well-earned, uh, but there are elements of it that are beautiful. And it does have a message and that, that not everything is just like go fast, big explosion. And, you know, there's a bad guy to kill. And, and, and Trek is one of the few things uh, where you can have both of those stories, both mm -hmm. of those adventures of, you know, we have a problem to solve versus there's the scary bad guy and both work. Because again, Wrath of Khan, like a fan favorite for a reason. Um, uh, but this movie, the motion picture, uh, there's a there's an ambiance and beauty to it. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. This has just been a short episode, a lot of fun, and we'll be back to discuss uh, the last two episodes of Lower Decks. And we'll figure out. We're uh, both amazing. <laughs> I, I, if you haven't seen them yet, watch them. They're fun. And we will be back to talk about those. And we'll figure out what we'll do with Discovery since all of us seem to have like a love-hate relationship with it. So it's kind of weird. Um, it's growing on, it's growing it, on me. <laughs> I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. And also, I just, I do love Doug Jones. So that's uh, yeah. He is definitely a shining light in that show. Plus, I like the ship. I'm mean, like, it's a handsome ship. You know, it's like, I'll take it for a spin. Let's go. And <laughs> yes. uh, giddy up. So, uh, but yeah, let's let's see what the first episode does, and we'll go from there. So Sounds every, good. Exactly. Everyone, take care, and we will see you soon.